Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Brian Krim about his excellent new book, Our Germans, Project Paperclip, and the National Security State. Brian, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, Brian, we always like to begin these interviews by asking the author to tell us a little bit about themselves, their background. Sure. Well, you know, I think I started out as a, a, if there is such a thing as an average graduate student, uh, I got my master's at uh, Old Dominion University in military history, and I was really interested in the officer corps, the German officer corps in between the world wars, you know, particularly the Reichswehr and kind of the navigating that, that hazardous period of history. And it led me to, you know, the work of Omer Bartoff, who I think we all know, and at that time was really kind of writing what we call the new, the new military history, looking at the social, cultural, ideological uh, background of, of you know, military officers in particular, and um, also the legacies of, of World War One on the Holocaust and really the you know very bloody 20th century. So I applied to work with him while he was at Rutgers University. He was only there for a relatively short period of time, but I, I managed to uh, get there during that window. And of course, working with him you know influenced me greatly, uh, particularly looking at you know the you know, the ideological dimensions of anti-Semitism in, in the German military community. So I wrote a, a dissertation really about uh, veterans groups and particularly a Jewish veterans group that, that responded to anti-Semitic attacks during the Weimar era. And, um, and here's what I think I, I went a little off in, in that I, I was always fascinated with the work of intelligence and the intelligence community. And um, I came back from a Fulbright year at the University at Freiburg, the military archives, and decided to work for a few years in um, the intelligence community shortly shortly after nine eleven. And uh, that was a very different job. Um, it certainly taught me that historians and intelligence analysts do similar work. <laughs> we have incomplete information, it's often biased, and we have to write for an audience of non-experts. Um, but working in that environment, during the Bush administration uh, made me realize that I wanted to get back into academia and I kind of clawed my way back and uh, am now very happy at the University of, of Lynchburg in Virginia. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I, was, I was interested to hear a little bit about how, you, how your route, because um, it's certainly, it's, they seem like different fields, uh, you know, certainly from the face of it, but as you explain it, right. there, there are similarities. Um, so for your, your current book, um, Project Paperclip, it's not something I think a lot of people know a lot about, um, mm. but let's, let's start with some of the background. Um, you, you talk about a lot of different um, German scientists in this book. Um, could you give a brief overview of sort of the big ones, the big characters, and, and, and sort of what they're doing in, in, in Germany during the war, in before the war? 
Sure. Yeah, I think you know we. I think collectively, I think most Americans understand there were German scientists working in uh, the space program. I think we watched the right stuff, or we, you know, we we have an idea. But my real interest is how did they get there? Uh, what were the moral and ethical choices made? What were the the uh, practical choices made along the way to bring really enemy combatants <laughs> into the you know emerging military industrial complex? So that, that led me to investigate Paperclip. And certainly a lot of great historians have worked on German scientists and science during the Third Reich. So my book tried to bridge uh, these historiographies and kind of look at it as a transatlantic topic. And just for you know, the, the sake of simplifying my research, uh, what happened in, in 1998 to, 19, to 2008 was what's called the, the Interagency Working Group of uh, archivists and scholars and and uh, people like Richard Brightman, among others, were you know got together and, and declassified about eight million documents in relating to the United States intelligence community, the Third Reich, and Imperial Japan. Things that had been kept classified for a while. And w- among these documents was a cache related to uh, Project Paperclip, including 1,500 foreign scientist case files. They were called with amazing details about many of the people the United States recruited, uh, their infamous backgrounds, and uh, I couldn't do all 1,500. So what I decided to do is take a relatively well-known group, the Rocket Team, led by Werner von Braun, and not even all of them are very well-known, but certainly he was. But to to take a sample of, of some of these 120, really, scientists and compile kind of a collective uh, biography of them and what they were doing before the war and what they did when they they came here. So I really focused on Werner von Braun, people like Arthur Rudolph, uh, Ernst Eckert, um, the real Werner von Braun's brother, Magnus von Braun, and try to get a sense of, of how they came to be recruited and what they did on their own accord to uh, sell themselves to the United States. But certainly during the Third Reich, they um, began as a private group of rocket enthusiasts that um, the German army, the Reichswehr, wanted to co-opt because they, of course, we know we're dealing with incredible restrictions with the Versailles Treaty. So they made all kinds of these, you know, what we call the Black Reichswehr agreements with uh, private groups. And so a very young 20-year-old von Braun, who was, you know, was almost getting getting his PhD at that point, uh, came under the fold of the military and kind of stayed there throughout, uh, you know, World War II. And he was in his late 30s, you know, by the time the war is coming to an end. So he's uh, was raised essentially by the German military industrial complex. And the, the, General Walter Dornberger was his principal um, benefactor. So they kind of navigated the hazards of being in the politically uh, charged atmosphere like the Third Reich by by playing along in some cases and seeking independence in others. And I found that to be kind of the basis of the, the rocket team generally, that they were amoral technocrats. And I think that's the best way to describe them. Some of them were actually very criminal and clearly ideological, but most of them, like I think a lot of German scientists, knew where their bread was buttered and and played along happily until things began to fall apart. Um, so, in in von Braun's case, would you would you describe him as as one of these sort of technocrats, or was he a more committed Nazi? 
You know, it's one of the great questions, and I would certainly uh, advise people to read Michael Neufeld's 2007 biography of Von Braun for kind of the definitive account of, of him as a man and, and the, the complexities of Von Braun. But and, and my understanding of him and what I saw both uh, on both sides of the Atlantic is that he was extraordinarily passionate about space travel and, the, and this, you know, obsession with rocketry. And while he did come from a, um, a very conservative Prussian family that had kind of a, a latent anti-Semitism and uh, reflexive support for authoritarian leadership, including Hitler. In fact, von Braun's father was the Minister of Agriculture for Prussia during the Third Reich. Um, what you had with someone like von Braun is he, uh, uh, as he once called it, he goes, I don't care how, this quote him, he said, you know, I don't care how do we milk the golden cow, but I want to get to to the to space. And, the, and if the Nazis can help me get there, great. And if the Americans can help us, that's also what he wanted. Um, but he did join the SS uh, younger at a younger at a at a year different than when he stated in the security interview. So he he, knew, he was very aware that he didn't want to come off as someone who was a, a a party member, but he did join early, and I think he did it at the direction of Dornberger, who said this is a wise thing to do. All along the way, he doesn't show much interest in ideology, period, but he does have a, um, a, an ability to impress who he thinks he needs to impress to get what he wants, which is resources. And he impressed Hitler directly early on by making a video on a film, you know, cutting together a film of, of what he thought rocketry could accomplish, and particularly the military aspects of it, knowing that that would excite Hitler, and it did. So he got what he wanted. Um, and he'll do the same exact thing in the to for American officers. He, he's brilliant at salesmanship, but to him, it's all a means to an end, and that is uh, space travel, uh, and if that's working for the military, both militaries, in order to get there, he's absolutely skilled at doing so and fine with that, I think, Faustian argument. Mm. So, okay, um, I, I think that's a, a good explanation uh, of his of how he thinks and how a lot of these other scientists think. Um, so the the war is, is sort of winding down. It's, it's 44 and 45, and uh, the U.S. military is starting to, to push its way into Germany, um, and they put together these sort of task force to capture mm -hmm. technology, um, scientists, I think you call them, are they called uh, T-forces or? Right, yeah, the, te the technical forces, technical forces attached to yeah, three different army groups. Um, and, so, and so this is sort of where the foundations of, of Paperclip is coming from, these, these forces. They're looking for technology, they're looking for scientists. Um, can you explain um, sort of the how the project gets started, who the whose idea it is, um, and sort of how they put the nuts and bolts of it together. And I'll ask some specific questions um, from that. Right. So, yeah, as you know, really, even before D-Day, there's this understanding, especially once the V-2 is wreaking havoc, uh, although not, as we know, it's not military significant, but it's obviously a terror weapon. And Eisenhower in particular wanted to annihilate the the bases and the from where they're operating, uh, there's an understanding that despite this horror, re, that there's brilliance behind it, and um, it's both necessary to you know, safeguard civilian lives uh, and possibly military lives to to root out the V2, but also 
uh, they want to know how they're doing it and and why is there why is there this breakthrough in Germany that the other allies, including the Soviets, have not been able to accomplish. So um, the you know, the big problem and always will be for the United States is inter-service rivalry. That there's a Navy team, there's an air an Army Air Force team, there's a, a different. Um, civilian interests in in acquiring German technology, and so it took uh, a real act of, of you know of, of Eisenhower's main office to to push these things into one concerted effort. First, the T forces, and later something called Field Intelligence Agency Technical, which coordinated all of the teams that were scouring. You know, behind the lines for material, and then eventually they learned more important than the material were the scientists themselves. So there was a bureaucratic kind of a centralization that occurred in in the Supreme Allied headquarters, and uh, the main target they realize are are the German scientists who are unfortunately deep behind Soviet lines, and what will eventually be Soviet lines at, at Penamunda on the Baltic coast. But the von Braun team. And the SS, who he's now under the, he's working for directly, want them away from the Soviets and are pushing him into the interior where they meet up almost, you know, by accident with uh, a um, regular army unit who recognizes that there's some, that this is who a lot of different other people are after and they secure them, you know, in this Bavarian ski chalet. So it's kind of a combination of both very deliberate planning to find these scientists in an accident that they wound up, you know, in the in the boondocks, really, as opposed to where they were primarily up up in the Baltic coast, and then also in in Mittelberg, which is in, um, you know, kind of in the what would be later East Germany. So it's both skill and accident that they wound up in American hands, and that became the genesis of of Project Paperclip. Of let's exploit them either. In residence in Germany, which became hard to do, uh, possibly England, and then later it became rather. It was turned out as a very controversial notion of let's bring him to the United States, even if temporarily. And that all happened within the within the late spring and summer of of ni- early summer of 1945. So it's a very fast moving, opportunistic project. Um, would you say that the scientists in general, and of course I'm. I'm not asking you to detail every every person's decision making. Um, they were certainly, for the most part, more um, eager to surrender to American forces than Soviet forces. Is that correct? You know, I I thought that initially, and I think generally that's true. But there's a there's a, the Soviets are very good at recruiting scientists with. Uh, money with better accommodations, with the promise of not prosecuting them for anything, whereas the United States at least had to pay lip service to the idea of denazification. So it's actually more complicated than I thought once I delved into the, you know, the the archives here that there was real in the the first-hand accounts. The Soviets were actually initially better than the British and the Americans were at recruiting, but as things became tenser uh, and that, you know, Stalin was losing patience. Then they just went for the all-out grab that we kind of associate with Soviet occupation policy as being rather strict and harsh. So in the early, you know, 1945, even till 47, you really had to compete with the Soviets who were offering, in some cases, a lot more immediately anyway than than what the Americans or British were willing to offer. Uh, but 
the problem, what happened with the rocket team is that the SS was terribly afraid of Soviet advances into, um, you know, East Prussia and, and to the Baltic area where the main, you know, because where the Penamunda was located. And, uh, they started sending them trainloads of them into, um, into the interior where they happened to be in contact with American troops. So, Certainly, John Brown knew he wanted to work with the Americans and uh, saw that only because they had more money, he thought. That was his big thing. Is that, well, they're never going to run out of money for us. But he also would have been perfectly willing to work with the Soviets, and many of his own team did. In fact, Helmut Gotrup, who was his kind of third in command, really, wound up running the Soviet equivalent of, of uh, the rocket team for years over there. Um, you mentioned something in your answer that I want to want to go back to. You mentioned that one of the things the Soviets could promise was that you know we weren't going to prosecute you. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk about this this problem, this tension for the Americans who, who were particularly forty five, forty six, forty seven, still pretty geared up to prosecute uh, right. war criminals, which a lot of these scientists were, um, and of course denazification and who's a Nazi, who's sort of a nominal Nazi. Um, can you talk a little bit how, about how they squared this? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, I mean, it's a really, that's the essence of it because they do, you know, they, as, as I'm sure you know probably better than I, that they have this classification system of, you know, there's one category one through four and one and two, you know, were the real Nazis. You couldn't touch them. They couldn't have substantial jobs. They could barely be, you know, dog catchers, even if they were a dog catcher in the third Reich, they probably fell into some one of those categories. But categories three and four were deemed, you know, you know, maybe some sort of penance, uh, maybe a, a month sentence. They can join, rejoin uh, society and even work for the Allies. So they, the, the problem is that, you know, one part of the of the occupation government, one part of even the army is saying we need to thoroughly root out uh, and Nazis and, and push through de- our our denazification program. While another part of the army is saying, well, but these scientists who fall into these categories need to be protected. So how about if I, you know, one part of the army is saying, what if I give you enough paperwork that shows that they are categories three and four, even the ones that aren't, and you pretend that's okay and we get beyond this. Uh, this is something the Soviets did not have to care about they didn't even though they were largely the victims of many of these scientists and uh their weapons and also you know running help running camp uh, concentration camp uh, experiments deep inside what would become russian territory they were perfectly willing to ignore that if they could deliver something useful in the american and british zones uh there was this you know, requirement that required that also lent to great abuses. Um, so one part of the army wasn't talking to the other, or if they did, it was under the table. And so you had, as I point out, and, and others before me had proven deliberate falsification of security dossiers just to get around our own denazification policy. And it wasn't like then the Germans were happy to play along and were sometimes coached on how to answer questions by American officers helping them with their dossiers that in order to get the recruitment smoothed over. Uh, so it was really this uh, incredibly um, disheartening thing to read about. You know it intellectually, but when you see the nuts and bolts of it in some of these files, it's amazing how it would be as simple as someone filling out a forum saying, 
uh, Arthur Rudolph is is an ardent Nazi, 100%. And then having a month later that same form read, Arthur Rudolph is not an ardent Nazi, 100%. It was, that's literally what they would do. Is change, and they're doing it, they're lying to one part of their own uh, bureaucracy. And, and it's um, a, some, a, kind of a bizarre circumstance to, to read this while the Soviets are saying, well, can you do something for us? Yes, so here's a, a bucket of lard and some vodka, and you're on your, come here, <laughs> you're on your way. Uh, so it's, a, it's, this would, of course, not last with denazification in general. will end certainly by, by 1947 in mass, and that, that makes it a lot easier to recruit scientists after that. So, yeah, let me ask you about um, the administration. So I, I got the sense, and you can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong because you've read all this stuff and I haven't, um, that Roosevelt was, would have been less keen to do this than Truman. I got I got the sense that Truman was a little more enthusiastic about the potential of these scientists than 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 FDR. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, it's hard to know for sure because Roosevelt sure. wasn't presented with this particular opportunity. But and even for Truman, what really sold it for him was something that uh, the military was reluctant to pursue initially, which was commercial benefits. I think a lot of high-profile you know, business executives were whispering in Truman's ear about uh, what, how much money could be saved or, or how much time could be saved, certainly, in advancing, for example, chemical uh, and electric um, company projects or even things like the Bulova Watch Company or Kodak were all fascinated with what the Germans had and what they could essentially take as reparations. And that argument resonated more with Truman than I think the national security one, which the army thought would be more important and, and pushed in public. Uh, so it, it, it's weird how even within the executive branch, there's, there's, they're not talking to you. They're not speaking the same national security language just yet. Uh, but also remember it's, it's Japan is still a, a viable threat in May of 1945, and and that was the principal reason why Paperclip moved so quickly in the executive branch is because you could say, well, what did the, we need to know what the Germans have given the Japanese, and we also need the Germans to help us defeat the Japanese with these wonder weapons they created, and that was enough to kind of smooth over even the fiercest critic. But once that, of course, that war is over in the Pacific. Um, that argument falls apart, and you have, suddenly are scrambling for new ones. And whether it's the Soviets, whether it's business, uh, Truman, at that point, is a committed Cold Warrior, even before that word is being used uh, in late 1945. And he happily signs that executive order, knowing, however, thinking only that a handful of scientists were coming over. No one told him it would be a thousand. Um, but but it's weird how it was business first before national security that initially piqued his interest. Yeah, and, and I, I'll def I definitely want to come back to this as we get closer to the end of your book um, to sort of give people the bigger picture of how this impacts us going forward. But you, you almost read my mind and brought up the Japanese. I wanted to ask, was there yeah. any um, sort of um, complimentary paperclip for the, for the Japanese, or was this just a deal with the Germans? Mm -hmm. You know, when I submitted, you know, my my first draft of the book, and I don't know who it was because you don't quite know who who reads your uh, 
your manuscript in that phase. Uh, but one of the comments came back is, you know, I, I think the author needs to speak about that question. Why was there not a Japanese paperclip? You know, and it really uh, and it struck me. Like I wanted to to carve out some time and and go and, and investigate that. And while I didn't do a thorough investigation, I spent an additional week in the archives at, in College Park to look at the, just that issue because there, of course, was a substantial and impressive occupation regime in, in Japan as well that had the same issues, how to secure scientific material, what do you do with um, scientists, what about their nuclear program, such as it was, um, that all those things were considered. So I, I looked at what was, uh, what was it what's called SCAP. I, can't, I don't know the full name there, but basically MacArthur's uh, regime had a whole unit dedicated to tracking down and 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 determining the how advanced the Japanese were and they did discuss the possibility of a paperclip um and on an individual basis a number of scientists did even make it to the United States and and uh worked alongside Americans and in some cases even Germans that were already there on certain issues like infrared and radar and, and some other devices. Uh, but things you might expect were were that would hold up a paperclip were included blatant racism, the notion, one, that the Japanese couldn't possibly have, be that advanced. And also, if you did determine that they were advanced, how could you bring them to the United States and and have them settle the way the Germans did without exposing them, them to horrific racial resentment. The Germans didn't have that problem. They were already large communities of Germans, and they fit in pretty well. Um, one of my a good a colleague who wrote a great book called German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie uh, details the German community in, in Huntsville, Alabama, and how, how they seem to fit right in in the Jim Crow South without a problem. Uh, Japanese scientists would not have fit in as well, and that was one of the uh, reasons that I read on paper why you shouldn't bring him here is that they're they don't belong here is for one of them. Uh, but in general, you have to say that Japanese science was more about overcoming major production issues and not kind of boutique research scientific projects like something like the V2 or an electric submarine or the things that the Germans were doing. So it does have to be said that the German, the Japanese didn't have as much to offer, although in some cases they did, like biological warfare and um, advanced long-range bombers. Uh, so to, to warrant a full-scale program like, like Paperclip. But individually, the same sort of uh, process did occur, and you probably had you know at least a dozen or more scientists live in the United States for a period of time before going back. Okay. Um... Oh, so good. All right. I'm going to uh, transition a little bit and ask you about opposition to the program. There was uh, seemed to be sustained opposition um, from the State Department in particular. Um, you could describe what that what the root of that opposition was, um, because it may not be what people think it is. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I certainly knew the pe- group, private groups like the, you know, the Federation of American Scientists, and, and of course Albert Einstein was very vocal in his opposition to the Germans coming here, and also the NAACP put out a, a, a very strongly worded statement about this this 
uh, once it became public in, in 1946. But within the bureaucracy, I kind of expected it to be uh, fairly just restrained if there was opposition. However, the State Department is part of a worldview that still considered fascism and, and, and even the Germans still a, a direct threat. That there was this, we tend to think that there was this quick transition from Germany to the Soviet Union in the bureaucracy. Whereas, but this period of 45 to 47, there's there's a, a great deal of fluidity in and understanding what national security threats will be in the future. And for the State Department, who had just finished working on something called Operation Safe Haven, which was meant to prevent Nazi and really Axis capital and and manpower fleeing. Um, Europe for for places like South America and Central America, uh, that if they are so wedded to preventing this and a resurgence of, of of Nazism abroad, how can you possibly then ask them to help with a program designed to do exactly that, but except not in South America, but bringing Nazis uh, and other you know high profile um, and their high profile projects to the United States. So there was a real disagreement over what whether the, the German threat was completely done away with. And the heart of that resistance was in the State Department, who thought, one, you know, bringing them here is a danger. But two, the notion that you're offering them citizenship as a as a lure uh, it's not it's something the military doesn't have to deal with that's a state department responsibility so if that gets out if the if the inevitable occurs that you have war criminals here who are now american citizens that embarrassment and then later that horror is going to be shouldered by the state department not the military necessarily so there was a combination of moral outrage especially among uh, an individual i write about a great deal named samuel klaus who was a you know a Jewish State Department lawyer, and yes, he was offended as a Jew that this was happening, but more so he was interested in preserving the integrity of the State Department, saying this is not we don't we have a a, a process of vetting and bringing Nazis here and having them um, violate our immigration law is something that we have to take seriously. Uh, so the the opposition is both about maintaining the institutional credibility of the State Department, as well as the moral outrage of asking other people to not have Nazis in their backyard, but we bring them into ours. And I found that to be an incredibly powerful and consistent argument for the opposition well into the 1950s in some cases. Now, you you do talk a lot about Samuel Klaus in your book, and uh, you you, you describe his personality uh, quite well and thoroughly. He's, He's sort of prickly. Um, yeah. Um, but my question about Klaus is, were those on sort of the, who were for paperclip, um, was there sort of some sort of either latent or overt anti-Semitism that, you know, he was Jewish and sort of getting in their way? Um, because I know in the cases of, of war, some war crimes trials, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there were Jewish interrogators and they were often right. looked on by Americans with suspicion um, sort of as vengeful Jews. Did, 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 was that a problem for Klaus with his, his counterparts, both in the State Department and, in the, and elsewhere? Yeah, I think it definitely was. And, and I, one of the things that I detailed that was a surprise to me was that he had this pre-existing 
rivalry and relationship with J. Edgar Hoover, you know, and, and, who, and Samuel Klaus is very kind of what we call middle-level bureaucrat, yet he's, you know, uh, he's very well known to J. Edgar Hoover, who we know is, you know, among his many faults is, you know, raging anti-Semite. Um, and, and so he demonstrated himself to be a, with his personality and with his kind of fierce independence, uh, wherever he works, Klaus tends to protect his turf pretty well and those of his colleagues. And that enrages him to, I think, you know, causes a great deal of resentment among uh, other bureaucracies that want to use the State Department or the Treasury or wherever he was working for their own ends. So he kind of already has a, a mentality of being somebody who protects his turf. And when people are frustrated with him, it seems immediately they go to, well, he's Jewish, he can't possibly see this through the eyes of, of just uh, the, of, of, of the transactional nature here, that the paperclip is about preserving national security and who cares what they did. Uh, he's just bitter about not, uh, not accepting, for example, displaced persons instead of these German scientists. So it didn't take... Uh, the military long to figure out that he was Jewish and then use that against him both in, in pretty openly as well. They'd go to before Congress and blame you know, obstructionist Jews and you can read the congressional testimony where those words are being used. Um, he uh, is he in his own mind, Klaus thought he was being singled out for for being Jewish. And I think he's right. His colleague Seymour, uh, um, Seymour Rubinstein, who's also a, a prominent State Department lawyer, agreed uh, decades later that it was the fact that they were Jewish that that helped uh, people ignore or downplay their criticism. And another issue is that whenever, beyond just Samuel Clauser and the State Department, whenever there was vocal opposition to paperclip, it seemed that there was an alliance between American military officers and the German scientists to paint their critics as just disgruntled Jews. And I found that to be remarkable, that you had American officers kind of coordinating a message with their German scientists about how this must be the product of Jewish resentment whenever something untoward shows up in the press or that they're given too much freedom of action. Uh, it's, it's definitely a latent, and in some cases blatant, um, tactic to overcome opposition is to highlight the ethnic nature of some of the critics themselves. And that's, uh, you know, happened immediately and then continued well into the 1980s when the Office of, of uh, Special Investigations actually began looking at this as a, as a problem with, uh, of harboring Nazis. Um, you mentioned uh, bad press. Um, what was the public reaction to this program? Did they... Did they care? Were they outraged? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, it's a good question because I, I was amazed that uh, there, there was general opposition and distaste for Paperclip. But then you have to ask the question, how intense was this distaste and resentment? For example, the, the one kind of Gallup poll that was done showed that you know, most Americans disapproved of bringing Nazis over to the United States and putting them in military bases and having them work for us. Uh, I think if you asked any American that question in 1946 when they asked it, it would probably be answered the same way. But what I also think is that it wasn't very 
intensely held of an of an opinion um, that if you were to present it as uh, this can help us with uh, the Soviets or this is good for business and that that initial distaste goes away and I think the army counted on that and certainly the German scientists saw that happen in their own lives if you, you know, read about their transition into becoming Americans it was they were pretty well uh, well received by the early 1950s and without a hitch and I think it shows that that initial kind of uh, what do you mean that goes away once um, the Cold War becomes a reality. And also that unlike, for example, we just talked about the Japanese scientists, they look like Americans, they can speak English, they are uh, upstanding members of the symphony and all these other, they really integrate well into especially, I have to say, a lot of southern towns where they they're, they fit right in. <laughs> and that, uh, so asking that question in 1946 is, is different than asking it again in, say, 1952. Right, and and I'm sure that they found um, groups of Amer of German Americans who they could fit right in with. You know, that still might have spoken German and had some of the same uh, traditions that were probably more willing to sort of welcome them in. Um, but there was no sort of no protests, no veterans. Not often, it veterans. Yeah. You there was opposition, and I found a lot. Of, for example, the FBI files on this were were very good, uh, much better than I think the military files. I I think the military never wanted to truly investigate the the repercussions of paperclip, uh, and so it, you can tell that by reading their reports and files about interviews and and kind of action after action reports. But um, the FBI even under J. Edgar Hoover's leadership, still continued to do their job and and often reported a, a number of uncomfortable interactions between scientists and locals. And there were local uh, branches of, of, of veterans of foreign wars, the American Legion, certainly Jewish veterans groups in, in and around these communities had a lot to say about it. And so I did find, you know, these protests, some letters to the editor also i mean there's there's always a stream of this but nothing widespread mm. um and i think the army did manage their messaging really well by by bringing in cameras i mean they didn't try to cover it up for too long they knew that was impossible so they would bring in cameras and say look at these guys having him stand next to men in uniform uh they they looked apart um they're helping us with these advanced weapons or and engineering projects. That it, it definitely was well staged, I have to say, um, at the beginning. And then, of course, you have Walt Disney walking in to to make Vanna von Braun a, a star, which didn't hurt either. Yeah, I, I found that that part fascinating. I just never even thought about that. Um, <laughs> it's just a funny. It's just a surreal thing to think about uh, Walt Disney with <laughs> von Braun. Um, so okay, so now we're we're getting a little later into the '40s. The Cold War is starting to set in. Um, let's talk a little bit about how paperclip evolves as the Cold War starts mm -hmm. to, you know, get colder, and and sort of the the either perceived or real notion that these scientists and these weapons are going to be necessary because the Soviets are so advanced. And you talk about this in your book. You have scientists that are coming from the Soviet Union to the Americans right. telling them, you know, you better hire me because we, you need to catch up. <laughs> so, 
So uh, let's talk about this this diet, this part of it. Yeah, and I think the, the couple things happen in quick succession. One, you know, the Federal Republic of Germany is established in 1949. Uh, that that makes things both easier and more difficult, I think, for Americans. For one, it's harder to recruit scientists when they are now citizens of a independent country, so you can't just go in and steal them like you used to, although they will try. Um, but it also means you can uh, you have a shared interest with this new government that you're solidly in the Western alliance, so uh, maybe you don't have to steal them. But then soon after, what really changes things and solidifies the Germans as a integral part of, of the military-industrial complex is one, the passage of NSC 68, National Security Council Directive 68, in the, in the early, you know, this spring of 1950, and a few weeks after that, the invasion of North, uh, the invasion of South Korea by North Korea. Uh, that first NSC 68, if, if uh, listeners are not aware, was this really profound, represented a profound shift in containment policy. It was the militarization of containment, and it authorized the unlimited spending of resources, political capital, anything uh, to match a, a Soviet threat that was deemed so enormous and so completely conspiratorial in its ability to you know, take over the world that you, it required an, an, a just budget busting deficit spending for permanently it was it, it announced the establishment of a permanent national security state that was militarized in nature you know really just a, a, and it's coming on the heels of the national security act of 1947 which created the intelligence community the, an independent air force uh, again authorizing all kinds of uh, immense budgetary considerations that no peacetime army, certainly not the United States, had ever really conceived of. So NAC-68 was a boon for the defense industries, for the services, and now, because the scientists are so well integrated, for them as well. Werner von Braun and Walter Dornberger were ecstatic about NSC 68 talked about it amongst themselves, what this meant for them. Uh, and then it was vindicated, seemingly, by the, um, by the Korean War. Because all of a sudden, it proved that they were right to think the Soviets were this malevolent and, and talented in, in uh, infiltrating um, you know, every communist movement in, in, in the world. They were directing this grand scheme to, to circumvent the capitalist powers. Uh, it, it, it really silenced any opposition people may have had about, one, a national security state, but also granting the Germans – who are now not yet citizens but close to be, uh, full access, authority, unlimited resources to do whatever they wanted. And so that changed the nature of of, um, of how people remembered Paperclip, what they thought about it previously changed. Now it was seen as, why didn't we do more? And those who opposed it were targeted for being possibly uh, – communists themselves, because how could they not see that this was going to happen? Uh, why would you stand in the way of these Germans? So it, it completely gave von Braun and, and not just him, but all German scientists who were working for the United States cover, and not only that, celebrity <laughs> in a way. So it was, um, that, that definitely made Paperclip look even more sort of wise in, in, uh, than it initially was. 
Um, during this period, did you see um, more German scientists that were in the Soviet Union trying to get to the United States? Was there right. was there ever an influx, like a, a period of where you know got really high, got really low? Was there? How did the scientists use this yeah. sort of Cold War um, situation to better themselves and negotiate? Mm -hmm. I guess, in other words, with the with the with the superpower. Yeah, we first we, we need to go back and understand what happened to the the German scientists in the Soviet Union who did work relatively well and in similar circumstances with their Soviet patrons uh, between you know in the late 40s and early 1950s. But after Stalin dies in 1953, you know, there's a always you can expect a sort of uh, chaotic aftermath of that, there was a decision to uh, kind of purify Soviet science and, and um, in general, uh, distrust foreigners that were working in the Soviet Union. And so the Germans fell under that category, certainly. And so beginning even, you know, in the early 1950s, German scientists were, were uh, – excluded or kind of isolated from the, the most secretive and advanced Soviet projects. And we're really just doing basic engineering work. There's a kind of, they were not given much to do and, and they, what they were doing was really basic and they were not trusted any longer. And so around 1953 to 1955, uh, the Soviets just cut the Germans loose, just let them go. Uh, and they could feel confident doing so because they weren't giving them access to any secrets. They couldn't really go back to the West and say, oh, my God, look what they're working on. Because for a couple of years, they had they had been really uh, not privy to any of that. So a lot of them uh, worked at, went to East Germany and worked. A lot of them went to West Germany to work. And a number of them wanted to join their former colleagues in the United States, and they brought stories to tell with them. Some of it was wrong. Some of it was inflated rhetoric, uh, but they they all wanted to at least test the waters and see if they could get the same deal that their colleagues in the United States did. The problem was that the FBI was very suspicious of anyone coming from the Soviet Union, even if they were German now, that maybe they are double agents. So they many uh, I found God, probably 60 or 70 scientists interviewed and debriefed, and that was knowledge they could use in the intelligence community. Uh, but very few of them were trusted enough to be given a contract the same way the the Von Braun team was. I mean, a few did, and only because someone like Von Braun would vouch for them. But there wasn't a, a systematic transfer of German scientists working in the Soviet Union to the West because they had somehow become tainted. Uh, and a lot of them just wound up you know, doing their basic engineering work either in East or West Germany. Hmm. Um, you, you've mentioned a couple of times this sort of sort of burgeoning alliance between business, the military, technology, the sort of, you know, the, the, industri the military industrial complex that we, that Eisenhower warned about us, warned us about, and we talked about today is, Let's talk about the legacy of Paperclip. Is, is this the legacy? Is that they, is the Paperclip, and projects like it helped to create this, um, mm -hmm. the military complex, and sort of kept us, you know, kept it here to stay. Yeah, you know, I think I like to think of my book as a 
first step in, mm. in kind of exploring this legacy. I certainly couldn't do it all, but we all, when we, we write a manuscript like this, we have all these threads we want to pull even further, and you know, soon, then we're at like 200,000 words if we do that. <laughs> so I, I, I would like to think that this book is a is the beginning of 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 what I hope other scholars will and I know some of them are actually looking at this in greater detail the afterlife of something like paperclip but I, I you do have to, to marvel that a that you know in general 1500 scientists and, tech, and technicians and specialists and their families all came to the United States and and 90% of them stayed uh at least the ones that came between 45 and 47, they stayed in America. And they did join Bell Labs and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and IBM and, of course, NASA and, uh, you know, and the, and the military services until many of them were retired or forced out of re- to retire in, in the 1970s. That's remarkable that you have this uh, – this, this, kind of fly-by-night military intelligence operation become a sustained, really decades-long uh, program of recruitment and retention. Uh, the recruitment part doesn't impress me so much as the retention because the Soviets didn't do that. The British, with their program, didn't you know keep them, the French. But in the United States, it was different. They became American. That's partly why I call the book Our Germans. And they brought a organizational model like Penamunda to the United States and adapted it relatively seamlessly with our own. And you have to understand that's that's kind of they took a national socialist model of organizing organizing a military industrial complex and it fit in perfectly with the United States <laughs> model of doing it. And uh, so Michael Neufeld, the historian John Gimbel, they kind of hint at this and they are certainly um, you know noting the similarities in in approach. Uh, but I kind of what I've managed to do with with these declassified documents is just to see how extensive and and also disturbingly easy it was for this to happen that there was a shared worldview about the role of science in a, in a technocratic state that uh, had nothing to do with ideological bent you know and, and I think that's a real legacy here of what what does it mean to be a scientist in the uh, you know, in the technocratic age, and 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 people like von Braun are are certainly famous and have this deserved reputation, and, and a huge body of scholarship devoted to them. But what his real talent was was taking something from a blueprint and making it into a product, and that's exactly what the United States needed at that time in '45, and 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 he helped us catch up to that um, point where it becomes now a a um, measure of success is how quickly you can do something like that. And I think that was his real contribution. And the, the Germans helped immensely in sustaining a military industrial complex that today we just take for granted. Um, as, as a way to sort of close our discussion on your book, um, what are one or two things you would like people listening and uh, people who read your book to, to really take away from it? Well, one thing I, I really wanted to, talk about is an individual I came across early on in my research, uh, a man named Walter Yessel, who um, I highlight in the first chapter of the book because he was a German-Jewish emigre who uh, 
became one one of the Ritchie boys. You know, you, you probably have heard that the, of the Ritchie boys, the Camp Ritchie, Maryland, housed about 3,000 German Jewish um, emigres who had come to the United States since the 1930s, and uh, they were, uh, you know, trained to be interrogators, trained in, in translation, obviously, but uh, also really dangerous intelligence operations because they were German and they could. Uh, you know, blend in, and they were sent to do some rather dangerous missions uh, with the American Army. And so Walter Yessel was one of these Ritchie boys. Um, he was probably 33 years, he was 33, relatively old, second lieutenant, who was sent with, along with behind Patton's Third Army to be an interrogator. And I highlight him because he was the first to really interview the Vanner von Braun's rocket team in captivity. In, in one week in June 1945, he is with them compiling this very impressive, uh, lengthy report on who they were, what they had to offer, what are they lying about, what, you know, what is their character. And it was the most amazing thing I had read because it was nothing like any other report I've encountered. And so I was so intrigued by him because I found, you know, some of these reports don't have an author, but his name was there, that I discovered uh, more about his background, that he died in 2008. I contacted his family and told them I wanted to get a hold of anything he had from that period. They happily obliged and gave me his diary, which even gave more detail about that week in June with these, these rocket scientists. But he also left behind a full manuscript called Class of 31 um, when he was in uh, – military occupation in Frankfurt, he um, went back to find all of his Real Gymnasium, you know, classmates and to find out what happened to them during the war. And he wrote a book about this journey to find out the fate of his classmates, what happened to them during the Third Reich. Um, and it's a remarkable book. And I, I was so impressed with it that I had it published uh, with Academic Studies Press called and under the title Class of 31. And the reason I found out about him is because he was the first person to interview the rocket team, and he was extraordinarily critical and prescient about what they were, who they were, what they knew and didn't know. It was, and that kind of guided the rest of my research and colored my understanding of, of the rocket team. So I would hope people would focus on that part of the book as well, because he's fascinating, and maybe check out his own story he wrote in 1946, tracking down his classmates, because it's definitely a snapshot of, of what defeated Germany looks like in the first few months after uh, the collapse. Yeah, no, I, I will, I'll echo what you said. It, it, he, <clears throat> I had never obviously heard of him before I read your book, and I, I, was, I was also fascinated uh, by him, and I would, I actually would really like to read the his book. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So before I let you go, um, I like to ask one last question. Now that this book is done, it's on the shelves. People are buying it, and reading it. Um, what are you uh, working on now? Well, I happen to be working on a what may seem completely different topic. I I have an advanced contract with uh, Rutgers University Press on a book. Uh, relating to Holocaust cinema uh, and Holocaust film and, and representation. So the book is called On Planet Auschwitz, Holocaust Representation in Science Fiction and Horror Film and Television. Uh, and it's kind of came out of a class that I taught and also just my general sort of observing why this, there's so much Holocaust imagery in, in pop culture. So it's 
meant to be maybe an upper level undergraduate textbook, but it's it's uh, deals with shows like Man on the High Castle mm-hmm. and The Walking Dead, and so it, it's it's very different and fun. Um, I'm about to put it to bed, I hope. Uh, but my next kind of topic related to Paperclip is on the Reinhard Galen organization. You know, the infamous um, head of German military intelligence who wound up creating the the Bundesnachrichtendienst and worked with the CIA. That same group of files that I that were declassified um, in 2008, among those are, are a huge cache related to, to Galen. And so starting in January, I'm going to look and see what uh, what is there and, and figure out what the next project might be. Well, uh, the, the first project you described sounds fascinating, and I hope when it's done, <laughs> um, you will come back and talk sure. with us about it. Um, I think a lot of people would enjoy hearing about it. Um, well, I again want to thank Brian for being on the show today. It, um, it's a great book. Uh, again, it's called Our Germans, Project Paperclip and the National Security State. I would encourage everybody to go out and get it and read it. Um, and Brian, again, I want to thank you. Um, and I want to thank, thank ev- uh, and I want to, uh, th- and I want to thank everybody for listening and we will see you all next time.